A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Previously on Father Wants Us Dead. Yeah, well, it was just, it was a shocking sight to see. You know, somebody that would take and kill his whole family and disappear. Yeah, I just never really made eye contact. Unless he had some kind of, well, you know he had some guilt deep down what he did. He had to have. If Bob was wearing a brown suit and it was a paneled room, he might have faded into, you know, the background. He would think about what happened and he said regretted it, but as time went on, it left his mind and he didn't think about it a whole lot. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. This is Father Wants Us Dead, a podcast about the John List murders from NJ.com and the Star Ledger. We're going to start this episode in the spring of 1985 in Westfield, New Jersey. At this point, Jess, it's been more than 13 years since John List methodically slaughtered his whole family. This was his solution to avoid financial ruin and ensure they died as good Christians. And for 13 years, List has been living a new life as Robert P. Clark. He married an unsuspecting woman, went back to accounting and church. It's a fairly normal life. Of course, no one in Westfield, including authorities, knows where he is, Rebecca. They just know he's probably out there somewhere, capable of a level of savagery no one in this wealthy suburb has ever seen before or since. And he's not yet paid for his crimes. And these are the reasons that then-detective Jeffrey Paul Hummel finds himself driving down the Garden State Parkway one spring day to meet a psychic. I know when he told us this, Jess, we were both kind of grinning and shaking our heads because it's just pretty far out. You start thinking about crystal balls and tarot cards and all that stuff. But, you know, when you think about it, you really put yourself in his shoes. He's just the latest in the line of detectives at the prosecutor's office to get this case file. And there's nothing new to go on. So you can see why he was ready to try anything. We talked with him at his office at the Union County Utilities Authority, and he still feels that same outrage as the first time he went through the case file 36 years ago. Just absorbing those crime scene photos, a mother, three children on sleeping bags in the ballroom, and then their grandmother crumpled on the floor upstairs. After I went through that case file, I, I came to realize the sincere premeditation that, that he employed in order to murder his family based on the most ridiculous self-imposed standards that he had upon himself. And I just found it repulsive. And especially his son, John, who he pumped 10 bolts into, was just beyond the pale. And it affected me like it affected most other police officers that were involved in this case. This man had to be brought in and he had to be held accountable. If I was in his position, I think I'd try anything. Because Jeffrey Paul Hummel can also see in the case file everything that they've already tried. The aged police sketch of List that turned up nothing. The tips they've run down from Hungary to a guy from Long Island they even brought in and fingerprinted. 
and their attempt to enlist the Lutheran Church to help. Nothing had worked. Law enforcement was ready to throw anything at the wall that might stick. John List was under their skin and in their heads. Hummel's not big on the paranormal, but another detective suggests a psychic he once hired. So Hummel gives her a call, figures it's worth a shot. Was she expecting the call, do you think, Rebecca? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so he drives over an hour to meet her, bringing a folder of crime scene photos, which she had asked for, And he said she spread them all out and over the course of about an hour told him what she felt about the case. She didn't believe the suspect left by air, that he probably left by train or bus. She also said she felt a strong presence in the southwestern portion of the United States. She also said that she felt a, uh, subsequent to that, she felt a presence uh, uh, regarding uh, whereabouts in the southeastern portion of the United States, namely Virginia or, or Florida. She did indicate that um, there was a new woman in his life. And <clears throat> the final thing she told me that, that, that I recollect from our, our meeting was that he would visit the gravesite on his birthday. Okay, Jess, I am an extreme skeptic when it comes to psychics, but there are parts of this that are pretty spot on. And this is in 1985, so John List is with Dolores, but he hasn't yet moved to Virginia. And the only thing Hummel can really act on from this is the idea that List might visit the graves on his birthday. And at this point, investigators really have nothing to lose. So a few months later, Hummel prepares to spend List's 60th birthday in Fairview Cemetery. So on the evening of of September 16th, I had parked my vehicle several blocks from the area and I walked in. And I set up a uh, surveillance position um, above the gravesite, and I waited. I got in there probably about 9.30, 10 o'clock. And then around midnight, I started hearing footsteps. And I went, no, this cannot be. Well, it happened to be two college kids cutting through the cemetery going over to the county college on the other side of Cranford. So uh, I waited till daybreak. Nothing materialized. I left. I came back the following evening because it was still his birthday, set up surveillance again, stayed till a little bit after midnight, maybe about one o'clock in the morning. Nothing ever happened. Can you imagine that disappointment, Rebecca? Like, you probably don't have a ton of hope because this is a long shot, but it's your only shot. But John List was not coming back to the cemetery for closure because, as we heard from Dr. Simring in our last episode, he isn't even thinking about the family he murdered. He's not waking up screaming from nightmares about shooting his son or dragging the bodies through the mansion. It's mind-boggling to think of how little it affected him while loved ones and friends and the whole town were so shaken by what he did. We've heard from people about how it gave them nightmares, made them feel unsafe or just uneasy for decades, especially knowing that John List was still out there. And Jess, we've talked about how determined the police are to catch him. But when I think about this detective spending all night in a cemetery because a psychic told him to, what I feel is how much that determination in that moment just doesn't matter. Like you can want it with all of your being, but cold cases go unsolved all the time. But maybe you need to hit a certain level of desperation to throw that Hail Mary. And that's what they do. They try one more kind of offbeat idea 
One that wasn't just unheard of before 1988, but wasn't even a possibility. Not until a rookie TV network and some L.A. producers dreamed up this idea. And this is when everything changes. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. America's Most Wanted made its debut in February 1988. There'd been a similar show in the UK, but in the US, the closest thing was Unsolved Mysteries, and that featured cold cases and paranormal stuff. Obviously, America's Most Wanted is a cultural touchstone now, but it started as the underdog of all underdogs. It was on Fox, a network so new it only had two nights of programming. No one thought it would ever rival the big TV networks. And you could say it was the opposite of the shows that were most popular at the time. The Cosby Show, Cheers, Golden Girls. But the show came out swinging. Its first episode featured David James Roberts, a rapist and serial murderer who had escaped from prison. Four days later, he was in handcuffs. And within weeks, America's Most Wanted was being broadcast on 125 stations to millions of people. It was a hit. It could have been a flash in the pan, but the show just got bigger with every high-profile capture. And eventually, it became one of Fox's longest-running shows. But back in the late 80s, it was already changing the course of TV history. It was basically a precursor to reality TV especially when you consider the audience participation. It was really bringing these people on their couches into the show like they were part of it. And it sounds over the top, but the message it was putting out was that you had to watch. Because your neighbor, your boss, your husband might be a secret psycho killer. But the New York Times called it tabloid television, and they questioned how it sensationalized these awful crimes and handled the whole innocent until proven guilty thing. Still, in terms of catching fugitives, the show worked. And that surprised a lot of people. This wasn't how crimes were solved in the 80s. Detective Jeffrey Paul Hummel starts watching America's Most Wanted that first year. And even though it's not his case anymore, the idea of List's face and story being broadcast to millions of homes across America, it's too good not to pursue. So Hummel calls Westfield police And Barney Tracy tells him that he tried to pitch the list story to Unsolved Mysteries. Sent him a letter, and they wrote me back a nice letter, but said they wouldn't do it. I mean, that's the one thing about this case. It it really wasn't a whodunit. It was, where is he, you know? The next call Hummel makes is to the captain in charge of the major crimes unit, and thus the John List case, Frank Marenka. He died a year ago, but everyone we talked to said he was a great guy, a great investigator. The John List case is a big part of his legacy. So back in 1988, Hummel tells Marenka about America's Most Wanted, and Marenka reaches out to the show. And they got back to him and said, nope, 
ACE is too old. We need we need uh, cases that would bring us, you know, uh, more ratings and someone we could apprehend in a, in a closer period of time. This is, you know, this is really a cold case of trying to find somebody who's been, been on a run for 17, 18 years. And also, no one knows what John List looks like at this point. They have that police sketch they created, but it doesn't really look like List. These detectives aren't giving up that easily. And then they get another chance. Jeffrey Hummel gets a flyer for a police conference. It says a team of producers for America's Most Wanted is going to be there. It feels serendipitous, like the stars are finally aligning. He and Frank Marenka head down to the conference in Delaware in January 1989 to make a personal appeal to get the List case on the show. The show's executive director, Michael Linder, gives a presentation, and then the two investigators make a beeline for him. And I told him about, briefly told him about the case. We sat down at the table in the lobby, but I said, I have some more interesting uh, information up in the room. I'd like to show you some more of the uh, case file in depth. So he says, certainly. So we took him up to the room, our, our, our hotel room. We spread the crime scene photos all over the beds. And Mr. Linder's reaction was uh, pronounced. I mean, uh, anybody looking at the, at the photos of the, uh, of the bodies laid out in the, uh, in the ballroom, in the sleeping bags, with the coverings on the faces, the bloodstains uh, uh, tracking to the, uh, uh, to the uh, resting place. And um, I'm sure it affected him. And that's what caught his eye. It was the crime scene photos, I think, that sold him. You know, you've been trying to get this on TV and, like, are you... Just elated? I mean, what is the moment there? Give yeah, me the, like, well, yeah. yeah, well, after he left the room, was a lot of high fives between me and Maranka because we felt that, um, you know, that uh, we, we sold the case. Frank Maranka said in a memo that it wasn't just the crime scene photos. He wrote that Mr. Linder said the FBI had been pressuring the show to put on older cases. He thought this might be a good test case. Maranka said at that time, John List was the FBI's third longest-running fugitive case. So the prosecutor's office continues to work with producers until they agree to do the show. But producers were asking for a lot. Locations to film in, interviews with witnesses like Rick Bader and the cops who found the bodies. And they didn't have a lot of time to get it all done. In Westfield, Barney Tracy became the point person. He was in daily contact to make sure the production would actually happen. And they said, well, we need a house. We need people. We need a church. We need, you know, I go, okay, you know, am I an assistant producer in the show? Or, but, you know, I was enthusiastic about it. And I actually went to a local resident, the Horn family, and um, asked, and they were super excited about doing it. Then they said, well, you know, we're, we're going to need some extras. So... I got my kids and I said, you and your friends, you think you want to be in this show? And all like, they were all excited. And then my wife said, what about me? So we're all in the reenact. And this is certainly a departure from his daily police work, Jess. And Tracy said not everyone was as excited about it as he was. But I think, like, my peers, they were going like, you know, this guy's a clown, you know? Like, they're not going to get this guy, you know? To do as much as we did as a police department, to assist the show, I think people were like, you know, they're really going overboard. They're wasting the time. We got other cases going on, active cases going on. So you take a risk, I guess, people taking you seriously or not. But we were serious. 
But at this point, a lot of cops are starting to see the benefit of the show. 20 million people are watching. And this is a show I totally grew up with, Rebecca. So I knew I had to interview the person who knows it better than anyone else. Yeah, that's a good thing for a podcast. You can't. Yeah. Hi, John Walsh. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? The man himself. Jess, I know it took literally months to get Walsh on the line, but I'm so glad we did because you really can't talk about what happens next to John List without talking about America's Most Wanted and its famous host. And what a character John Walsh is. He's busy shooting the fourth season of his current show, In Pursuit with John Walsh, on Investigation Discovery, and he's still on the hunt for bad guys with the help of the public. We're trying, really trying. But anyway, I know you I know you want to talk about John List, so... Yes, very excited to talk about John List. I mean, first of all, do you believe that it's been 50 years? It will be 50 years, November 9th, since the actual murders. Pretty... Pretty amazing. Seems like three years or a hundred years. We were only supposed to chat briefly, but once we got started talking about lists, it seemed like Walsh could go on forever. If you don't know John Walsh's story, what brought him into this crime TV world was the abduction and murder of his six-year-old son, Adam. Walsh became an activist, and two years later, NBC made a television movie based on Adam's story. At the end, they included photos of missing children. Adam was supposedly the most watched TV movie of all time at NBC. Did our urging put 65 missing kids behind the three different airings? It recovered 50 missing kids. The power of television, it only took me that night watching it and say, you know where my battleground is? It's in television. You know where I'm going to get my army together? I can't hire 100 vigilante cops to go out with me or mercenaries. My army is the public. Then, producers working on a new crime show literally stopped Walsh at the airport and pitched him the show that would become America's Most Wanted. And I'm in the Fort Lauderdale airport one day and a guy chases me to the gate. He says, I'm from the Fox Network. And I go, what the hell is the Fox Network? Run by a guy named Rupert what? And he goes, Rupert Murdoch. I said, never heard of him. (laughs) I'm not interested. I don't want to be on TV. Good luck. Thank you. You know, catch some bad guys. Catch the guy who murdered my son. Six months, they drove me nuts. You know, my wife, God bless her. She's got such guts and she's got such clarity. And she said, this is what we do. This is what you do, John. You want to do it? How do you want to do it? I said, I don't want to go to Hollywood. I want to do it in D.C. I want to be near the National Center. I want to be near the FBI and the marshals. They're my friends now. And I want to pick the cases. Even with decades of crime stories behind him, Walsh still remembers the first time he heard the name John List. We got a challenge for you. We love to catch this son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. And and he's your kind of guy. He's killed three children. I went, yeah, I hate those guys. He said he killed his own children. I said, who kills their own children? They go, John List. And I went, wow, that's the son of a bitch. And I said, okay, when did that happen? Well, here's the challenge. Mm-hmm. 18 years ago. And I went, really? And what kind of tips? What kind of leads? Not one tip. Have you spent any money looking for them? Over a million dollars. 88, that was 10 million. He goes, okay, so you got no leads. What about a picture? We have a 21-year-old picture. I go, 
No leads, no picture, <laughs> not a clue, not a tip. Come on, you're the hotshot guy. You catch the uncatchable. Said I'll do it. But first, they need to figure out how to show 20 million people what John List looks like now. They've only got a few photos, and they're decades old. Fortunately, Walsh knew a guy. A guy who could use those photos, some research, and a bunch of clay to recreate John List from thin air. Frank Bender was a forensic sculptor. In his obituary, the New York Times called him a conjurer in clay. He could mold how fugitives would look years after they were last seen, or what missing people looked like from their recovered skulls. I had known him for years and years. On his own volunteer basis, we would ship him skulls of unidentified dead children. He meticulously, with clay, rebuilt their skulls. He was way ahead of any of the forensic artists, way ahead of any of the laboratories. He was an avant-garde sculptor in Philadelphia with the most bizarre little studio. And I said, Frank, here's the challenge. All Bender had to go on were three old photographs taken before List disappeared. He needed to imagine what this mid-40s List would look like now at 63. He also did his research. He met with the FBI and talked with anthropologists about bone structure and skin folds. To complete the picture, he worked with a forensic psychologist who wrote a profile of List. And what Bender created was an incredible likeness of List. His receding hairline, his jowls, the scar behind his ear, and the finishing touch, a pair of horn-rimmed glasses. You can see the bust on our website. Bender also went with his gut on this one. He told a Star Ledger reporter later that he decided to make the corners of the mouth turn down. List wasn't feeling guilty, he said, but he was worried about getting caught. It was mind-boggling. And I put it on the TV and everybody laughed, just like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times said, America's most one will never work. It's the father of murdered child. He doesn't know anything about TV. It's just gonna be a flash in the pan. And so guess what? I put that bust on and I talk all about List, talk about how he was in the Lutheran church and a volunteer, he was an accountant. I give every detail I know about him. A lot of the things we talk about on the podcast is how John List is a guy you wouldn't notice in a crowd, right? Like he doesn't look like a murderer. He seems so average, so plain. I was getting really good at catching guys. And I knew one thing since after Adam was murdered and I started my personal battle with sex traffickers, pedophiles and stuff. Who do they look like? They look just like your father, just like your mm-hmm. uncle. 10,000 Catholic priests were pedophiles that not one of them went to jail, not one of them in a 20 year period. So who do they look like? They look like everybody else. And John List is so nondescript that he is the kind of guy that can hide in plain sight. So it was in 88, 89, it was sort of an unconventional thing to do for a cop to go to a TV show. But, but it's brilliant, right? I mean, you, you have to get it out there to as many people as possible. And then there's this, the public has this want to be participatory in these stories. They want to help. They want to contribute. I always believe that. I always said that the vast majority of people are good. They just don't know what to do. But when you put a guy on for a pretty long time and you tell everything about him, 
you motivate people. And when people heard about, wow, this guy ripped off his mother, lined her up on the floor, killed his wife, killed his three beautiful children in the prime of their lives and just left them there with the music on. Son of a bitch needs to be caught. We'll be right back. The episode of America's Most Wanted aired at 7 on Sunday night, May 21st, 1989. The half-hour show always starts the same way, with Walsh teasing the two or three fugitives you're going to learn about, and then the theme music cranks over images of cops and arrests. Walsh starts the John List episode standing in what looks like a police precinct. It's really a studio in Washington, D.C., He tells viewers they're about to see the oldest case they've ever done on the show. So you're immediately hooked. The reenactment scenes show the killings. They also show List teaching Sunday school. A boy raises his hand to ask a question. That's Barney Tracy's son, Brian. And then comes the bust that Frank Bender made, creepier than any mugshot that's ever been featured on the show. It's there in 3D, the disembodied head of this family killer with cold glass eyes. Walsh even spun the head around to show the scar that List had below his right ear. Here's another innovation about America's Most Wanted. They'd have shots of the crime tip line in action, like a telethon with people answering the phones live. And for each episode, the people picking up those phones were actually connected to the case. On the night of the List episode, Westfield detectives Barney Tracy and Kevin Keller were there. So were detectives from the prosecutor's office and FBI agents. For viewers at home, they are literally being invited to interact with the people investigating the crimes. It's more than a TV show. It's a chance to contribute to an investigation. And it's unlike anything audiences have ever gotten to do before. And by the end of the episode... The calls are pouring in from all over the country. Here's Barney Tracy again. We got about 250, 300 calls that night. I probably got, I don't know, 30 or 40 myself. But that night, um, they gathered all the calls together, all the tip sheets, and they distributed them. I would take all the New Jersey ones and distribute it either to a local PD or FBI or whatever. This must be such an exciting moment for them, Rebecca. His image and story are going out all over the country. But it also has to be scary because if this doesn't work, it was all for nothing. And you know all of Westfield is watching. And so many of the people we talked to said that they caught it or even videotaped it. Tim Seifert happened to switch on the TV and catch the show in his home in Connecticut. He thought the bust was impressive. And back in New Jersey, Patty's old friend Susan Cousins Jankowitz watched it. She said she felt like she was frozen in time, still an angry, grieving 16-year-old. But Detective Jeffrey Paul Hummel was watching for a different reason. He knew what was on the screen might be their last hope. A chance to close a case that had vexed law enforcement and haunted a community for 18 years. This went out to millions and millions of households across the United States. If somebody has seen List, 
if somebody knows List, there's going to be a connection, you know? And I was just with bated breath waiting to find out. You might be wondering whether John List caught his own episode on TV that night. And it's actually not a settled issue. People who knew Bob Clark said he liked America's Most Wanted, and List told the psychiatrist, Dr. Simring, that he caught the tail end of the show, where they recapped the suspect featured earlier. But Hummel and other police sources we talked to said they don't believe List actually watched the show, because he was supposed to be at a church event that night. But whether List watched or not, 20 million other TV sets are switched on in homes all over North America. This is prime time, Sunday night, the biggest TV watching night of the week. And in one living room in a condo in Aurora, Colorado, three people are glued to their TV. They aren't watching quietly, engrossed because the story they're hearing is too awful to believe. They're having a heated discussion. Wanda Flannery turns to her daughter and son-in-law. That's Bob, she says. And at that point, they all recognize him. It can't be, but it is, their old neighbor. Wanda is too freaked out to call. She's too afraid List will come after her. But ultimately, they know they have to. Her son-in-law, Randy, volunteers to do it. 20 minutes after America's Most Wanted ends, he picks up the phone. Police were kind of skeptical because I guess they get a lot of phone calls. And I told them, well, you can either look into it or don't believe me. I said, but it is the guy. It is the guy. If you can't already tell, our next episode is one you definitely do not want to miss. You can hear more of our interview with John Walsh and see the bust Frank Bender made on fatherwantsusdead.com. When I saw the picture of him, I started to think, oh my God, I think this is John List. And then she proceeds to tell me the story about how she had called the FBI to tell them about how they were in Midlothian, Virginia. And I, I mean, I was totally shocked. And, uh, you know, my family thought I was crazy. And they were like, what, what do you got, you know? Um, but it was like hitting a lottery for me. So that woman was his wife. Hello, Dolores. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jessica. This is Rebecca. Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music. And Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malak. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. 
Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story, including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.